The next passage we'll be studying in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Uh, this morning, it's my privilege to introduce not only Vernon, but two other men uh, who are leaders in the Ministry of World Help, part of Vernon's entourage today. Uh, and I had the privilege of spending time with as well in Guatemala uh, in January. So anytime you see a humanitarian need uh, on the news, the chances are that World Help is there or, or soon will be there. And it's, that's why we love to partner. Uh, Mission View, as we look out, the, the World Help is truly a world partner for us. So uh, Tony Folio uh, is here with us this morning. Tony is president of World Help's advisory board. He's a retired pastor from Sunrise uh, Community Church, I believe is the, the name of it, Sunrise Church, uh, in San Diego. Uh, he's returned with his wife to Toronto, Ohio, he says, for the climate. Uh, he's done so. Uh, Tom Thompson, who's the senior vice president of World Help. You'll see him a lot in the videos. He's there right alongside Vernon. He's the former executive pastor of Shadow Mountain Community Church, along with David Jeremiah. And Vernon Brewer is the founder and president of World Help, a Christian humanitarian organization uniquely qualified and strategically positioned to meet the spiritual and physical needs of hurting people around the world. World Help exists to fulfill the Great Commission and the Great Commandment through humanitarian aid, child advocacy, Bible distribution, church planting, and especially uh, to the unreached peoples around the world. Uh, several years ago, I had the opportunity to golf with Vernon uh, at Firestone Country Club. Vernon's passionate about a lot of things, but he's also passionate about golf. And he told our foursome that we were his new best friends. So this morning, I'd like to introduce, assuming nothing has changed, my best friend, Vernon Brewer. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. And Todd is also on our advisory board. I just want to remind him it's been a while since I played Firestone. And I'm free this afternoon. Good morning. I am so glad to be here. I've been praying for you and for your pastor. I'm a cancer survivor. 18 surgeries. They removed a five-pound tumor off my heart and lungs, told me I would not survive. And so I'm praying. I'm praying for strength, for wisdom, for grace, for healing, for power. I wrote a book after my ordeal called Why? Answers to Weather the Storms of Life. And I brought some copies. They're out there. Uh, no charge. Just take them. And this hopefully will be an encouragement to you as you face these days ahead. And please tell Steve uh, how much I missed him being here. Of course, if he was here, I probably wouldn't be here, but please tell him I missed him. He and I have been friends for almost 20 years. He introduced me to Maranatha Bible Church. And the passage in your series today is Philippians 3.12. I'll read from the New Living Translation. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things, or that I've already reached perfection. But I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. 
No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. That passage is your pastor. And you stand with him. You pray for him. You encourage him. I can't tell you how important encouragement is as he presses on to reach the end of the race. Paul said it a different way in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. To win the contest, you must deny yourself many things that would keep you from doing your best. An athlete goes to all this trouble just to win a blue ribbon or a silver cup. But we do it for a heavenly reward that never disappears. And in Hebrews chapter 12 we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects the faith. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. Paul, the writer of Hebrews, both were writing these letters to Christians who were experiencing intense persecution on a daily basis. When we read these verses, it becomes very easy for us to interpret them from our own perspectives and experiences. And it, instead of me expositing these verses for your series this morning, I want to talk about these verses from another perspective. Hopefully, you'll appreciate that. But we read here words like endurance and hostility and weary and give up. These words take on sometimes a shallow meaning for us than most of the rest of the world. So I'm going to ask you this morning to look at the, these verses through the eyes of someone else, the eyes of a persecuted Christian. And I want to share with you something I've never shared with another church uh, before. In fact, last night was the first time I'd ever even shared these thoughts. We had a dinner in Toronto, Ohio with 25 people, an intimate setting. And I shared some of these thoughts with them. This is the first church 
that I've shared this with. And I want to ask you if you'd be kind enough, just for a moment, if you just close your eyes. We're not going to have any um, new age seance. Just close your eyes and see if you can picture what I'm about to tell you by simply quoting you a number. Are you ready? In the last 10 years, one million Christians have been murdered as a result of their faith. That rounds out to approximately 100,000 deaths per year for the last 10 consecutive years. One million people, one million Christians, one million martyrs. Can we take a moment to allow that statistic to seek sink deep into our hearts will you visualize this massive tragedy with your eyes still closed perhaps you're tuned into our world enough to know that much of the slaughter is occurring as a result of ISIS and the refugee camps and then there's North Korea but there's more there's also Africa and India, and the list goes on. Perhaps the horror movie in your mind shows dear Christian men and women dying for their faith. Allow me to push the envelope further to an even more horrific picture. Many of these one million martyrs have been children, innocent little boys and girls. A million martyrs are more than enough. You can open your eyes now, and I want to invite you to watch this with me. Persecution can mean denying basic human rights to someone because of their faith. It can mean physical, emotional, and psychological torture. It can mean humiliation, degradation, prison, even death.
I've met with pastors whose families have been slaughtered, whose homes have been burned to the ground for their faith in Christ. But every one of them refuses to surrender. They refuse to give up. They are willing to risk it all for the sake of the gospel. Today, I want to ask you to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters suffering around the world. Pray for peace. Pray for protection. Pray for encouragement. Ask God how he could use you to make a difference for his people. They desperately need our help, our support, our very best effort. So please join me today in doing something that will outlive you and last for eternity. Stand with us as we pray, support, and remember the believers of the persecuted church. Jesus himself was the first martyr and most of his disciples and followers suffered cruel and agonizing deaths. Stephen was stoned to death. James the son of Zebedee was beheaded and Philip was scourged and thrown into prison and afterwards crucified. Matthew was slain with an axe. James the Less was beaten, stoned, and finally had his brains dashed out. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. And Mark was dragged to pieces while Peter was crucified upside down. Paul gave his neck to the sword. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and crucified. Thomas was thrust through with a spear. Luke was hanged on an olive tree. And Simon was crucified. And only John, the beloved disciple, was the only apostle who escaped violent death. One authority writes, Christian persecution did not stop with the deaths of the apostles. It has continued throughout the centuries and grown dramatically in the last few decades. The devil still prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. He still seeks to snuff out the life of Jesus and all who call upon his name. But make no mistake. Christian persecution is increasing, and in one way or another, it affects us all. But why is it that so many American Christians simply don't care? David Stravers gives us two reasons for Christians' relative lack of interest in the plight of suffering sisters and brothers worldwide. He said, number one, American Christians, for the most part, are not interested in anything that happens outside of the boundaries of the United States and in many cases outside the boundaries of their own little community. And number two, 
American Christians have no experience of persecution or suffering for their faith, which remotely resembles the experiences of many of our overseas brothers and sisters. So it is difficult to empathize. Many, many, many American Christians refuse to believe what is reported because it is so far outside their experience. A report released this past January states that 2016 was the worst year yet for Christians in the last 25 years. And that the ISIS attack on two churches in Egypt this past spring that killed 47 believers takes martyrdom out of musty old church history books and hurls it to the front pages of our newspapers. The report goes on to say that persecution of Christians has risen worldwide for three years in a row in Nigeria. The killing of Christians has risen a shocking 62%. While in India, a country where Hindu nationalists have spread an anti-Christian sentiment, an average of 40 violent incidences have been reported every month. And in total, 215 million Christians live in countries where they are subject to hostilities ranging from social discrimination and harassment to physical violence and imprisonment, and yes, even death. Christians are now murdered in more countries than ever before and are persecuted in more countries than any other religious group. But you won't hear that on the news. A million martyrs is more than enough. I've seen this firsthand. I've made more than a dozen trips to Iraq where ISIS killed thousands and of Christians and destroyed their homes and their churches and their crosses. I've seen the devastation Churches riddled with bullet holes, crosses torn down and smashed, Bibles burned to ashes. And I've heard the heartbreaking stories of decapitations, torture, and execution. A few months ago, Tom and I were in northern Iraq, and I'd promised my wife that I would not go to Mosul. She, she looked at me and said, now, promise me you will not go to Mosul. I said, I promise I will not go to Mosul. And so we got there, and our partner told us of the story of a village of 850 Christians that were starving. They'd been cut off for food for a month. And I said, well, let's do something about it. Where is it? He said, it's on the Nineveh Plain. And so we filled a convoy of trucks with food and medicine and blankets and mattresses and heaters and we were on our way and we had armed security and I was sitting there and we kept driving and driving and driving. I thought it was just outside of town and I saw the security chief with the little iPad using it with the GPS. I said, where are we going? And he handed it to me and pointed to Mosul. I said, I thought you said the Nineveh Plain. He said, yes. 
Mosul was Nineveh in the Bible. I want to tell you that it is true that in times like this, your whole life passes in front of you. And I was not afraid of ISIS. It was my wife. (laughs) Thankfully, she forgave me since it wasn't my fault. We got to that village and the security said, you've got an hour and a half. That's it. And we soon learned that ISIS had bombed the outskirts of that village the night before. We were two kilometers from Mosul. And we were ministering to these people. Someone left the village and went and tipped off ISIS and they were headed our way. And the uh, Peshmerger, the military, warned us and our security guard said, we're leaving now. So Tom and I have seen it firsthand. I can't help but think of my friend who saw him once a young professional with a promising career in one of Iraq's largest cities. Hussam was forced to flee his home with his family. ISIS had heard that he was a Christian and put a target on his back. Hussam's family fled in the middle of the night, having minefields to avoid detection and, and reached the refugee camp as darkness broke into the morning. Now Hussam and his family occupy a small corner of an overcrowded tent in a refugee camp in northern Iraq. Basic supplies they once considered ordinary are a scarcity now. Every day is a fight for just one small sip of water or another bite of bread. The weather, whether it's snow, rain, or sun, offers no respite either. Most days, Hussam looks at his family studies the faces of his young children and wonders why the world has forgotten them. He questions why everyone has given up on Christians. A million martyrs are more than enough. The tragedy is not just in the refugee camps in Iraq, Consider North Korea. I'll never forget my first visit there with Tom and Tony several years ago. We can't get in right now. It's too dangerous. They won't let us in. But several years ago, we were able to get in. As we drove over the Tumen River, our guide told us how North Koreans come to the riverbank and wait until evening to attempt to risk swimming to mainland China. The border guards have orders to shoot on sight anyone attempting to cross the border illegally. They are subject to summary execution. Our guide then added almost as an afterthought, the Tumen River has probably witnessed more deaths than any other river in the world. Once inside the country, We were suddenly struck by the eerie quietness that pervades the towns and cities we visited. The streets were empty, absent of the usual traffic and busy city life. And few people found themselves outside, seemed to meander aimlessly. Convoys of ox carts replaced cars and public buses. And the buildings with their 
water-stained stucco walls looked hollow and gray. Electricity was often cut off so that at night, entire towns were absorbed in darkness. I was shocked to see students typing on keyboards while staring at blank computer screens at one government school. They were pretending to do their classwork until the power came back on. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea is a communist state of 25 million souls. It is considered the most secretive nation on earth, driven by the fanatic Kim family into isolation and occultic reverence of the royal family. This small nation now threatens to destabilize the world with nuclear warfare. Yet as rumors fly about secret islands used to stage missile launches and stories emerge of United States citizens being held in hard labor camps, a whole narrative of persecution against Christians goes largely unreported by the media. Nowhere is persecution of believers more severe than in North Korea. I'm not even able to share with you many of the atrocities committed against these believers, especially the stories of how hundreds of Christ followers are executed every year. And in one instance, when a group of church leaders did not reject Christ, police directed a bulldozer be driven over them, crushing them to death. Can you imagine for 16 consecutive consecutive years North Korea has been ranked the most oppressive place in the world for Christians though exact numbers are difficult to confirm it's estimated that 70,000 Christians are being held in political labor camps often sick and malnourished these captives are subjected to extreme violence and crude torture suffering beatings with electric rods and metal poles and even being used as test subjects for medical experiments as reported in christian solidarity worldwide's 2016 report on north korea for my good friend and ministry partner charlie that's not his real name, but Charlie took me and Tony and Tom to North Korea. Later, he went back and was arrested. What he endured in prison brought him to the edge of despair. The treatment he received was so harsh, the pain he experienced was so severe that he actually contemplated suicide. Charlie was released after being imprisoned for 240 days, charged with espionage. He endured daily interrogations, frequent and severe beatings, and suffered intense physical and psychological torture. His actual crime was being a committed follower of Jesus Christ. The determination of the North Korean officials to break Charlie's spirit and get him to deny his faith was intense. Even a personal visit and plea by former President Jimmy Carter to gain his release was unsuccessful. Finally, after eight months of torture, Charlie was released. 
but his health was extremely poor and his spirit very low. While he now appears to be doing better, he has lost a tremendous amount of weight. He's not allowed to go back into North Korea. Doctors are closely watching for any signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. Please pray for Charlie, for his rapid recovery, for his physical, mental, and emotional health. And amazingly, Charlie's horrific experiences have not lessened his commitment to sharing his faith, his desire to deliver Bibles into North Korea from China, and to train underground church leaders remain strong. The way we got into North Korea is we were investors. We wanted to invest in a business that was accurate. The restaurant business. Because in this one particular city of North Korea, Charlie opened some restaurants that serve food by day and at night they close and train and disciple church planters in the back room by night. We're also in the dairy business. Across the border in China, there's a huge dairy farm where Chinese and North Korean farmers come and learn how to be more productive in dairy farming. And these North Korean pastors come for two and three weeks at a time and they learn farming by day and in the upstairs of the barn at night, we train them in discipleship and church planting. One of our partners working in North Korea told me a heartbreaking account of 81 believers who survived the horrors of prison camp. The descriptions I heard were staggering, gut-wrenching enough to steal your breath away. All prisoners were forced to perform 12 hours or more of intense slave labor a day from the smallest child to the physically disabled, even pregnant women. With each description, my friend's voice grew more solemn. He told me of believers being beaten mercilessly by prison guards, entire families tortured physically and psychologically, young men mutilated and dismembered, small girls made to endure sexual humiliation and torture, pregnant women forced to carry heavy rocks until they miscarried their unborn children, cruelty so intense that I can't even share all of the details with you this morning. This is what our North Korean brothers and sisters face simply for identifying themselves as Christians. And yet they refuse, they refuse to deny Christ. And in the face of inconceivable evil, they choose to love even as they watch their loved ones and even their children being tortured, they still proclaim that God is good. Put yourself in their place for a moment. Can you imagine losing everything for the sake of Christ? Today, 
I know brave Christians who smuggle Bibles disguised as phone books into the country. They risk their lives so that others may have the opportunity to read the forbidden words of Jesus in their own language. And during this time of great political intrigue surrounding North Korea, we must not forget the country's Christians. Countless thousands of them suffer daily for their faith. I know that their leader is a madman, and I know he has a finger now on a nuclear button. But we must ask ourselves, how long will we allow Christians to be the most persecuted people in the world? Until there are none left in Iraq or Syria? Until Boko Haram wipes them out of Nigeria and Hindu nationalists completely ban them from Indian society? Ten days ago, Tom and I were in northern Uganda on the South Sudan border where every day 2,000 Sudanese cross the border, hungry, emaciated. We were in two camps, side by side, with 72,000 refugees. I'm sorry. It's long past time for feeling shocked or even sorry for Christians. This is, not, this is not about pity. It's time to act. Christians and non-Christians alike in the West and across the world must come to the aid of those who are suffering persecution because of their religious beliefs. That's why we're what we're trying to do at World Help and I know it's what you're doing in your partnership with World Help. We're transforming villages in Guatemala. And we might not be able to end a war or put a stop to persecution, but we can certainly do more. And I'm not here to be political this morning, but I'm embarrassed that the United States of America is about to deport thousands and thousands of Iraqi Christians and then send them back to certain death. A million martyrs is more than enough. We have to do something. We must pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In the New Testament, it's written in the book of James, chapter 5, verse 16, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Pray that God would raise up Christ's followers who would rally behind their brothers and sisters who suffer, and in view of the devastating circumstances they face, pray for hope. Many are sick, hungry, and traumatized, so pray for spiritual and physical healing. The violence must end, so pray for peace. Don't miss this opportunity to reach forgotten people with Christ's love. Right now, the world is looking to you and me to see if we will respond with compassion 
our fear, with hatred, our Christ's love. We may never have another opportunity like this to reach the world with the gospel. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Refugee families are depending on our compassion and generosity for survival. You are a mission view church. You are a generous church. Keep giving. The need is great. These Christians are without homes. They don't know where their next meal is coming from and have only what they carried out or fled. By the way, they're not foreigners. They're our family. They're our brothers and sisters. They have no options, no way to feed their children. They have no jobs. God has not forgotten them or abandoned them, and neither should we. Every $5 you give will impact a life. And we're in not only the life-impacting business, we will literally save some lives. I came home from Africa a few days ago, and I watched a movie I'd seen before. I rewatched it on the plane, Schindler's List, the true story of Oscar Schindler, a German businessman that tried to save the lives of Jews during the Holocaust. He saved 2,000 Jews. That's all. But today, there are 7,000 living descendants of Oscar Schindler's Jews. We can save some Christians. As the worship team comes back, they can kill us all day long. But we worship a God whom the grave could not hold down. Millions in Syria and Iraq and North Korea are staring in the face of death, uncertainty, and utter hopelessness. Tony told a story last night at our dinner about Desmond Doss in the movie Hacksaw Ridge. Desmond Doss was born in my hometown, Lynchburg, Virginia. He was a conscientious objector in World War II. If you've seen the movie, you know he refused to carry a gun. But that day on Hacksaw Ridge, he single-handedly, in the face of Japanese fire, he single-handedly saved 75 American soldiers without carrying a gun. And President Truman awarded him the highest Congressional Medal of Honor for his bravery. 
Those of you who have seen the movie remember after every time he saved a soldier and put that rope harness around him and lowered them down that cliff, he would pray, God, just one more. Give me just one more. And he'd go back into the face of fire and drag another man. Some of them had lost a limb. Some had lost an arm. He would rope them in the harness and lower them down and pray again, God, just one more. And so my question to you today is, will you, will we be the ones to say a million martyrs are more than enough and give them hope and let God break their chains will you be the one to say God just one more because if the Christians in North Korea and Iraq and Syria and Nigeria and India are willing to die for their faith in Jesus Christ, then surely we as Christians in the land of the free, in the home of the brave, be willing to live for Jesus Christ. God, just one more. Thank you very much.